Well, we nearly come to the end of the book of Ezra. We're in chapter 9, just one chapter to go that we'll cover next week. And these two chapters really are united together under one common theme that I want to address. I think it's so fitting for the time in which we live. If I were to ask you today, what is the greatest need of our church? If I were to ask you, what what is the greatest need of Corinth Baptist Church right here in 2020 in the midst of all that we are are facing in our nation? What is our our greatest need? And and I think for some, as they would consider that question, we we would begin to think about the need for a, a vaccine to combat this pandemic. We still hear so much on a daily basis about this vaccine and, and so many politicians promising it's coming within the next month. And, and just there's this, this hope that's being built around a vaccine that, that the pandemic might be over, that people might be able to return to church. We still see a third of our congregation has not yet been able to return and gather with us here. And that ought to concern us and, and cause our hearts to be heavy for those that have not been able to return yet. So I, Perhaps we would say that's our greatest need. Or perhaps as we're nine days from what many are considering the most important election that's taken place in decades, and we could debate that one way or the other, but perhaps some would say, no, our greatest need is to win this election. Whatever that looks like for you, the win in this election, that's our greatest need. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're staking our hopes on. That's what we're asking God to do is put the right people in office as if we pretend to know who those folks are. The greatest need is that we win this election. Or perhaps others looking at some of the social issues of the day and seeing the racial divide that seems to be ever widening in our culture and the, and the modern theories of racial reconciliation that are actually in many ways increasing the gap, not resolving it. Perhaps we would say, no, our greatest need is for racial reconciliation Or we go on and say perhaps it's for the ending of abortion or or it's for an economic turn that things might be able to open up again. We could go on and on and on trying to answer the question of our greatest need. But I want to set before you this morning what I believe with my whole heart is the greatest need for Corinth Baptist Church, the community in which we live, the country in which God has planted us. In fact, what is the greatest need of all mankind is simply this that we might have as a church a greater grasp of the holiness of God and of our calling to be a set-apart people. That may not have even occurred on the top ten list for you when you were thinking about our greatest need, but I pray that it will as we Come to God's Word today. I've entitled this week's and next week's message, A Set-Apart People. 
That's really what Ezra 9 and 10 is about, and I believe that's what we need to be about in this cultural moment in which we are living, a unique day in many ways, and yet we are not facing anything that a sin-broken world has not thrown at God's people in generations past. And so as we think about these things this morning, we want to think about what does it mean to be a set-apart people? What are we talking about when we are talking about needing a greater grasp of the holiness of God? And I want to show you in Ezra 9 this morning how our our call to be a set-apart people gives us three primary reminders. And we'll see some more reminders next week in chapter 10. But there there are three things, three great truths that that us being a set-apart people, the calling that God has put on on our lives to be holy as He is holy, what does that lead us to First of all, being a set-apart people reminds us that there is a continuing reason for our separation, for our separateness. The most primary attribute of God as described in the Scriptures is that He is holy. And when we think of holiness, we oftentimes think of God's purity, and that, and that is right and good. But we need to go a, a step farther in our thinking that the holiness of God describes his separateness, his otherness, that he is not like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is transcendent. He is above us and beyond us in every way that we could imagine. The holiness of God ought to be that which draws us to God and also would lead us to run screaming from God when we recognize that his holiness cannot be intermixed with our sinfulness. Ezra is broken in this chapter because God's people have forgotten that He is a holy God. Oh, they've been reminded that God is a God of love because He brought them out of exile in Babylon. They have been reminded that God is a God worthy of worship because He has restored the temple and the sacrifices. They have been reminded that God is a God of justice because the Babylonians, the very ones who took them into exile, have gotten theirs. The bad guys have gotten theirs. They've been defeated by the Persians. And so now there's a new king in town. So they're reminded of the justice of God. But Ezra is grieved because God's people had forgotten that which is most primary about God, that he is holy. And this is demonstrated in the issue of their day, which was uh, these marriages with foreign wives. Now, we could easily misunderstand here and misapply, and it has been misapplied in many places at many times. But I want you to understand very clearly that the marriage issue that's breaking Ezra's heart, that this marriage restriction was not a racial issue, this was a religious issue. You need to get that in your head. This is not uh, about different races marrying one another. This is about people of different faiths coming together in marital union and it tearing the people of God apart. You see, what Ezra is lamenting is he is looking all the way back to the days of King Solomon. 
You remember David's son Solomon who, who came to power after David. And in the early days of, of Solomon's reign, he was a king who did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. And he built that first temple and he caused a revival that, that spread through the land. But in his later years, as he began to accumulate more and more wives, by the way, Solomon's a good reminder why we only need one spouse. One is more than enough, and that ought to get an amen from all of us that are in a marital relationship. But Solomon having hundreds of wives, and many of them being brought about by political engagements, that, that were, he was seeking treaties with other nations, so he would marry one of the wives of that king, or the daughters of that king, in order uh, to, to cause a political alliance. But as he accumulated more and more wives, as he grew older, the scriptures say that the, his wives began to lead his heart away from the Lord. Please understand that what I'm talking about this morning is a heart issue. Amen. I'm not talking about policy or practice this morning. I'm talking about the attitude that lies behind our policy and our practice. As Solomon's heart was led away from the Lord and he began to allow them to bring into the nation the worship of these false gods, which we might begin to think, well, what's the big deal? Can't we all just get along? But you've got to understand, as Ezra did, that the worship of these false gods brought with it abominations, which is not a word that God uses lightly. There were atrocities that were being committed in the name of these false gods. With the worship of these false gods, there came ritual prostitution into the land. With the worship of these false gods, there came child sacrifice into the holy land. With the worship of these false gods, there came self-mutilation into the land. With the worship of these false gods, there came all kinds of wickedness, and that's the very nature of idolatry. When we cease to worship the one true and living God, and we go after other gods, it always leads to all kinds of wickedness. And that's why the end of 1 John says to us just so simply, My children, keep yourselves from idols. This was not a new restriction that Ezra was bringing to the table. In fact, perhaps it had been his teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 7 all the way back to the days of Moses that had brought this to the surface. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses said, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you. And then he gives a list that's very similar to what we see here in Ezra 9. In fact, it's nearly identical, the list of these peoples, that these seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. That's one of the biggest issues that people have with the Old Testament. How could a loving God call his people to utterly destroy other peoples? But you see, he recognized that their intermingling and particularly their intermarrying with other peoples would lead them away from him and would lead to their destruction as it did. He said, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Here's the reason. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And that is exactly what took place during all those years of the kings from Solomon onward. Now, there were a few along the way, the Josiahs and a few others that led God's people in a, in a revival and, and cast out the worship of these false gods. But by and large, 
words, during those 400 years of the kings leading up to the Babylonian exile, God's people had one time after another been led into idolatry, the worship of false gods, and it had led to destruction. But as they did, we often forget that we are called to be holy as God is holy. God's holiness is not just a part of his character. It is a part of our calling as his people. Holiness is not optional equipment in the Christian life. So when we hear our Savior saying, be holy as I am holy, we don't have the option to look at that and say, well, Lord, I can't do that. The reality is in and of ourselves, we can't do that. That's why we need His Holy Spirit. That's why we need His Holy Word. That's why we need His Holy Presence empowering us for holiness. But far too often, we use this as as a cop-out. I'm reading a book right now called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, wonderful pastor who passed away just a few years ago, and he said this. He said, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. Or that God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Or that God is wrath, wrath, wrath. Or that God is justice, justice, justice. But it does say, That he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory. And church, we've got to learn to take the holiness of God seriously. We're called to be holy as God is holy. In 1 Peter, we see that we are called to be a holy nation, just as Israel was. I tend to believe the church is the replacement for Old Testament Israel, that we are called to be a holy people just as they were. This is not optional for us. We are called to a separateness. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to build some kind of a fort that we can all come into some kind of pretty little Christian commune and live out our days completely separated from the world in some kind of New Testament monkery. That's not what we're talking about. But what we're saying is, if we look just like the world, if we do everything that we can to accommodate the lost and dying world, if we talk like they talk, if we go where they go, if we, if we spend our money the way they spend their money, if we find our entertainment where they find their entertainment, then there will be no separateness to the people of God, and we will ultimately face a form of destruction. And God's judgment will come not because of the lost and dying world, but because of the lack of holiness in God's people. That's always been the case. Read history. Judgment comes upon a nation not because of those who don't know God, but because of those who do. And then there's this reality that I think Ezra describes and pictures so well in verses 3 and 4. And it's this, that our response to sin really is a revelation of our true view of God. 
You can learn so much about what a person thinks about God by the way that they respond to sin. And look at Ezra's response. I want to read it. Just the description is so, so graphic. And I pray that this would be true of us. As soon as I heard this, Ezra said, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Now, we would be tempted at some points to look at verse 3 and say, man, what a drama queen. Dude, you got on a little overboard, right? We go to the next generation and we see uh, about 12 years later a man named Nehemiah who comes in and sees similar sin going on. And rather than plucking at his own beard, he goes and plucks out the beards of the people who were committing those atrocities. And we say, yeah, I want to be more like a Nehemiah than an Ezra. But you see, Ezra was one who was recognizing that sinfulness ought to lead us to brokenness. It ought to lead us, our guilt ought to lead us to grief. But not just Ezra, verse 4, then all who trembled at the words of God, you might want to underline that phrase because it's so crucial, all who trembled at the words of God they, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So it wasn't just Ezra, others who, who recognized the holiness of God and saw the sinfulness of God's people, they came and gathered around Ezra and they sat appalled with him in that moment until the sacrifice the time of sacrifice came till the time of worship came and then they fell down before God and cried out to him as the Bible describes sin the Bible uses three primary terms that we need to kind of get in our heads as we think about what is this thing called sin and, and, and it's given to us in very graphic pictures that we want to see Oftentimes, the base level word used in Scripture is this word sin. And sin is a reference to missing the mark. It's an archery term that describes the bullseye, and that would be the holiness of God. And anything sin is any distance that we are from the bullseye, how far we are from the holiness of God. And the reality in this picture is not that I can be a little closer to the bullseye than you, and therefore I'm better off, I'm more holy than you are. No, it's any separation from the holiness of God. That's what sin is. And so I don't get to grade my holiness based on your holiness. I must see my holiness in light of God's holiness. Therefore, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So sin missing the mark. The Bible also speaks of, often of transgression. And then it's, again, a picture of crossing the line that God has enacted a boundary line. And we have chosen in our sin to transgress or to trespass, to enter into areas that we are not allowed to go. We have transgressed, we have crossed the line. Again, a, a visual picture of our rebellion against God. But the one that Ezra uses here and throughout this passage is the word iniquity. It's used often in scriptures, and in fact, in many ways, if you want to think about these three, though they're often used as synonyms, if you want to think about these three in increasing measure, sin is kind of the base term. Transgression is going a little deeper and a little, a little heavier in uh, to our rebellion against God, but iniquity is the heaviest of all the terms. This is premeditated sin. This is those who, knowing the word of God, choose rebellion against God rather than walking in his righteousness. This is breaking the law. Not breaking a law you didn't know existed, but breaking a law that you were familiar with. 
And that's what Ezra is broken over. Having spent several months now teaching the Word of God to God's people upon his return to Jerusalem, he's now four or five months into that task of teaching people the Word of God. Now there's this brokenness because they know what they're doing. This is not what Jesus prayed for on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the kind of sin that I see the law of God and I brazenly choose rebellion instead. That's iniquity and that's what he's praying for here. And if you think this doesn't occur in the church today, we need our eyes to be opened. So coming back to this marriage issue, what is he really getting at here? Is this really just an issue of marriage? And we can say, well, as long as I have a believing spouse, I'm good to go. No, really, I think what he's getting at here is what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Well, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership, notice these words, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness or what accord has christ with belial that's another name for satan by the way or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever notice the relational connections here and the depth of relationship that's being described these are not acquaintances these are vital relationships in the life of this individual and he's saying when we partner ourselves with those who do not share our faith in Christ, it always, always, always leads us to destruction. Now, we would often use these verses in youth ministry to speak against this thing called missionary dating, where most oftentimes it was the young ladies. I'm just going to go ahead and say it this way. Most often the times it's the young ladies who would go and they would see this, this rebellious young man. And they would say, I'm going to go and date him and get him to come to church and he's going to get saved and we're going to live gloriously forever. And, and if you know anyone who's that, that was their testimony, praise be to God. But I can share with you dozens of others that it did not go that way. And that young lady's faith in Christ was radically altered and even shattered as a result of running after a partnership with someone who loved darkness more than light. That's what John 3 says is the condition of those apart from Christ. They love the darkness. They're not just content with it. They love the darkness more than the light. That's the change that comes about when we're born again is we begin to love the light and to despise the darkness. And as I think about these unequal yokes, and I don't have, I don't have time to get deep into this this morning. I, I want to spend more time on it maybe next week. But, but I look around and I, and I see some unequal yokes that are happening in the midst of the church right now. And I just want us to examine ourselves in light of some of these and in light of the Word of God this morning. So just, just three this morning that I want to talk about just for a moment. First of all, we might need to consider uh, some unequal yokes in our personal relationships. And here's, here's what I'm talking about. Again, I'm not talking about acquaintances here or folks that we just happen to know uh, or meet on the street and would know their name. I'm talking about vital relationships in our lives. Your best friend. Folks that influence the way that you think. Not just Facebook friends, but, but folks that have a part in steering your heart. Proverbs 4 encourages us, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. 
And for most of us, there are a very few and small handful of folks that have a part in steering the course of our life in terms of what we think, how we respond, and, and what our faith in Christ looks like lived out, not just professed with our mouth. And yet sometimes we underestimate the power of personal relationships where one person is proclaiming to be a follower of Christ and seeking to live their life in light of Him and His Word and another who is loving the darkness. And so I would encourage you today to consider the personal relationships in your life. Who has influence? We, we hear this term today in social media. Social media influencers. Which is such a prideful term. We are such a prideful people. Amen. But I want to ask you, who are the influencers in your life? Who has sway on what you think and how you live? We all have them. We need to recognize that. But I want to ask you, are they chasing after the same God that you're chasing after? If not, beware, there's an unequal yoke. That always comes with it hard decisions that we're going to see in Ezra 10. There were hard decisions that had to be made because of this unequal yoking of God's people with those who had no desire for God. Second, I think about partnerships in business. So often we don't give a second thought to this, and yet the Bible, I believe, would encourage us to, to think deeply about those that we enter into business partnerships with. The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as we think about the partnerships that we would engage in in business, we need to be very careful that we are not engaging in partnerships with those who would not share our values. I know that some of you in this room have had to leave places of employment because you were asked to do things that went against the Word of God. And I say to you, praise be to God, that you cared more about God's Holy Word and your relationship with Him than about the paycheck that you were making. But again, there's a place where there's this temptation to make concessions in terms of our business partnerships and the places of our employment. And the Word of God would say, I'm calling you to be a holy people, a set-apart people. Not that you would have nothing to do with the world, but that you would not follow hard after the world and go the way of destruction. And finally, these political affiliations. And I want to try to tread lightly here. Church, if I could be honest, one of my greatest concerns for us in this current political moment is that we hitch our hearts to a certain party and a certain candidate, believing that if God would bless us, then most certainly that person must be elected. We have so identified what it means to be a Christian in America today with the Republican Party and Fox News and voting certain ways and following certain worldly agendas. And I want to say to us, be careful. Be careful that you are not hitching your heart and your hopes to someone being elected nine days from now. That's not where our hope lies, church. And I know that's not going to get a lot of amens this morning, but I want to cry out to us and say, be careful. 
Be careful that we are not aligning ourselves with a worldly party in such a way that we think that that's where the victory lies. The victory lies in Christ and in His kingdom. And as I heard spoken so well yesterday, He is not up for re-election. He is the king of glory and our allegiance belongs to him. Now that doesn't mean that we absolve ourselves from voting. No, I want to encourage you to go and to vote if you have not already. I want to encourage you to go to the polls and allow the word of God to be your guide. In fact, I so want to encourage it that we... Uh, this book was recommended to me. I want to thank Emily for recommending this book to me. And, and I, we bought several copies of this that you'll see as you go out today. I want to encourage you, if you're wrestling over the election, as all of, we, all of us ought to be, if you're not wrestling over this election, you need to take the blinders off. There should be wrestling for the people of God. And yet there should also be a resting in the hope of the cross. That our hope is in Him, the King of glory. But I want to encourage you to just take one of these. I think it just helped me to think about some things that I hadn't thought about and to begin to look at this from a biblical perspective. And so, again, just be careful where we are aligning our hopes. That was just my first point. I'm going to have to run through this real quick here. But number two, (laughs) there is a corporate responsibility for sin our calling to be a holy people to be a set-apart people reminds us that there is a corporate responsibility for sin now we are so quick to not think in these terms we have the attitude of cain when he said am i my brother's keeper and yet he was the one who just murdered his brother in the field that same attitude of, I'm my brother's keeper, that's not my business, I'm, what have I got to be worried about what's going on in their lives, that, that, that attitude so pervades our thinking that we, when we come to places like Ezra 9, we go, well, that's just Old Testament, we don't got to worry about that now, and yet we understand so very clearly that the New Testament has called us to be a people who are concerned for the cancerous sin in one another to the point where we won't ignore it, we can't ignore it. Because we know it leads to death. And there is a corporate responsibility. We all have an accountability before God for what takes place in this body. So a couple quick things. First of all, we must learn not just to identify other people's sins. Oh, we're pretty good at that for the most part. We must learn to identify with their sin. Look at Ezra's language. This is so powerful oh lord my god i am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you my god and then notice the eye shifts to we for the rest of the prayer it's for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens from the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt and you go wait a minute ezra hadn't married a foreign wife ezra as far as we know wasn't married at all But he's identifying, he's identifying with the sins of God's people. Brothers and sisters, do we recognize that the sins that we see in others reside just as full and just as full of destruction in us, in our sinful natures, 
When you look at someone else and you see their sin, is your response, man, I'm glad I'm not like that dude. That's that Pharisee Jesus talked about when he's looking at the temple. You see one, the Pharisee, saying, praise God, I'm not like that little sinner over there. And the sinner is there beating his chest and crying out to a holy God for mercy. When we see sin in others, it's our first response. I am so glad I don't have that issue. Or is it the recognition that but for the grace of God, so would I be? But for his mercy, that same sin would be eating my life apart. But for God's faithfulness, that same destruction would have taken hold of our marriage. But for God's loving faithfulness, so would I be. This keeps us humble. Then in verses 6 and 7, Ezra is describing our appalling guilt before God. I don't have time to go into it, but you see it's described there. The appalling guilt before God. We need to see this because if we don't see our sin, we will never see our need for salvation. And if we don't see the gravity of our sin, we'll never see the greatness of God's grace. And that's what we see in verses 8 and 9. We see God's amazing grace toward his people, that he has not treated us as our sins deserve, but he has come running after us in mercy and grace and love. And he has redeemed us to himself, not scraping our sins under the rug, but covering them with the blood of Christ. There's a corporate responsibility for sin described in 1 Corinthians 5. Again, this is not just an Old Testament idea. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to the church at Corinth, your boasting is not good. What were they boasting in? They were boasting in their tolerance of gross, unrepentant sin in their midst. Look what a loving church we are. And yet he said, this is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump like yeast in bread? Sin infects the whole body. That's the idea. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Because of the cross, we cannot look at sin in one another and cast a blind eye and say, that's not my issue because I'm not my brother's keeper. We look to the cross and we see God takes sin so seriously that his son had to die in our place. So how can we go on living in sin in light of the cross? Finally this morning, finally this morning, Our calling to be a set-apart people reminds us that there is Christ's righteousness for sinners. I love how even in this Old Testament passage, it comes running back to the grace of God before the end of this heavy prayer. Did you notice in this prayer, Ezra doesn't ask for anything. It doesn't even seem like a prayer in a lot of the way we think of prayer because Ezra asks God for nothing. He simply recognizes their sinfulness and their need for God's mercy, but he doesn't even cry out for the mercy of God. He just recognizes their situation. And what was their situation? It's the same situation that we have apart from Christ. Our situation is this. None can stand before God in their sin 
Look at the end of this prayer. It's so powerful. Oh, Lord, God of Israel, you are justice. We hear so many cries for justice in our day. There can be no justice apart from the God of justice. Oh, God, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, look, listen, pay attention, church. He says, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. The holiness of God reminds us that our sin separates us from him. R.C. Sproul said the human dilemma is this, God is holy and we are not. God is righteous and we are not. I've said so many times from this pulpit, the main question of the gospel is not how could a loving God send people to hell. The great question of the gospel is how can a holy and righteous God bring sinners like us to heaven? And I encourage you, wrestle over that question until God gets a hold of you like he got a hold of Jacob and you may live the rest of your life with a spiritual limp, but it'll be to the glory of God. As you see, God has conquered your self-righteousness and has instead shown you what the righteousness of Christ really looks like. Our greatest dilemma is the holiness of God and yet that is also our greatest hope is that he is holy, holy, holy. Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together we become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If Paul had stopped at Romans 3, we are a people without any hope. Praise be to God, he didn't stop there. What was his solution solution was this, that he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And I know you hear that from this pulpit week in and week out, and I pray you continue to hear it from this pulpit week in and week out. I pray that we live in, in light of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we recognize that any righteous standing we have before God is not because we are good people who vote Republican and watch Fox News. That we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that our Savior came and stood in our place. That he took our sin upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so I would say, church, in light of this, in light of this great truth that is at the very core of the gospel that we hold dear, in light of this, I want to leave us with this final question today. And I pray that it hangs heavy on our hearts. How then can we continue in unrepentant sin? How then can we treat sin as if it's no big deal? 
How then can we pretend that God will just simply absolve us of our sin? That we need worry nothing about that? Have no concern over it? Not be grieved by it? So often we take a license from the cross that has never been given to us. And so I'll leave you with these words from 1 John 3. I encourage you to go read 1 John 3 and see the call of God upon His people to holiness. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, who goes on sinning, who ceases from repentance and continues in sin, they practice lawlessness. That's iniquity. It's the breaking of God's law. Sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in Him, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning, persisting in sin, continuing in sin, apart from repentance, has either seen Him or known Him. Just as holiness is not optional in the Christian life, repentance is not optional in the Christian life. It's not enough for us to believe in Christ. There has to be a turning from sin that accompanies it. And finally, 1 John 3, 9, no one, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, keeps on sinning apart from repentance. For God's seed abides in him, the holy seed. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. God's solution to our sin problem found in him. No one. He cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he's been born again. See, that's where the hope lies, church. I want to remind you of it. Our hope is not in our righteous works. Our righteous works are filthy rags before a holy God. The best we have to offer him is garbage. That's why we need Jesus. And so I want to encourage us today to consider the holiness of God. To consider our call to be holy as he is holy. And to ask God to reveal to us on this day here in 2020, what does it look like for us to run hard after a holy God? To take our set-apart position seriously. Again, not to fortify ourselves from a lost and dying world, but neither to look just like them. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither does a man light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead he puts it on the stand that it may give light to all that are in the house. Father God, help us. You know our need. You know our brokenness. You know our blindness and our self-deception. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing about our greatest problem. There's no amount of righteous works that we could do that would erase our sin debt. 
but praise be to God. It's all been done in the cross of our Savior. And I pray that we would not take the cross for granted today. I pray that we would not continue playing the church game while ignoring holiness. I pray that you would not allow us to continue coming into this place, acting as if everything is fine when we have yoked ourselves to a lost and dying world and are being carried headlong toward a hell that Christ died to redeem us from. I pray, Father, that you would allow us to catch a glimpse of your holiness that would strip away our pride, that would bring us to our knees, that we might even cry out, Woe to me, for I am a sinful man among sinful men. But I have seen the Lord of glory. And then by your grace, Lord, would you bring that holy coal And would you touch our lips and change our lives, God? That we would no longer live as if we are a people without hope, but that our hope would be fully and firmly grounded in Christ. Father, as our holy God, take hold of us. Change us. Renew us. Revive us. We look to you in Jesus' name.